Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast. Every month, we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. My guest today is not only a terrific writer, but a dear friend, Penelope Janu. She's written six novels and a novella, and they cross a few different genres, contemporary women's fiction, mystery, sometimes historical, but at their heart, they're always a love story. There's a smart, complicated woman with a difficult past, an equally complicated man, and always an intriguing plot that keeps them apart. We talked about Penelope's latest book, Clouds on the Horizon, but we also touched on a few of her other novels. We chatted across a huge variety of writing topics, from finding voice to dealing with backstory, how to deal with tricky editorial notes, We covered fictional characters that she finds compelling in other people's novels and also what role a writer's group can play in a writer's life. Before we dive into the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Penelope. Penelope Janu lives in Sydney with her husband and six delightful, fully grown children who come and go. Penny has a passion for creating stories that explore social and environmental issues But her novels are fundamentally a celebration of Australian characters and communities. Her first novel, In at the Deep End, came out in 2017, and she's released a book a year since then, including today's book, Clouds on the Horizon. Nothing makes her happier as a writer than readers falling in love with her clever, complex and adventurous heroines and heroes. I hope you enjoy this chat about writing craft and process with the wonderful Penelope Janu. Penelope Janu, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to see you. Thank you. It's lovely to be on the podcast. It's an honour, Michelle. Oh, now Pen and I are friends. We are from the same writers group, so I do have a bit of insight into her process. But for the benefit of all of you, I've dragged her onto the podcast so I can wrestle all of that out of her. And uh, and I'm sure it's going to be of tremendous use to all you writers out there. Now, Pen, congratulations on Clouds on the Horizon, your sixth novel. How's it been received so far? Yeah, pretty well, actually, so far. I came out at a difficult time right at the beginning of January. It was the same with my novel last year. But luckily enough, after writing so many, I suppose, I have a number of readers that kind of read my next book. So that's been wonderful to sort of have that base. And then obviously people coming back into shops and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's wonderful that readers get to get to find these characters that I've created. I know. And I was in Kmart the other day and it was in a double column, not just one column of Clouds on the Horizon, but two. So I was very happy to see that. Otherwise, I think I might have had to go in there and create two columns. Rearrange. (laughs) So with Clouds on the Horizon, what came first for you? Was it one of the characters or the love story or the plot and from there, how does the novel writing process sort of begin for you? Uh, with me, it tends to always start with a character. I mean, at the moment, I'm writing um, rural fiction or rural romance. So I do have this idea of this character, Phoebe. It often starts with um, profession of the character as well. So I thought Phoebe, and she's an occupational therapist, and she deals with children who have um, sensory differences, oversensitive to touch and undersensitive to touch. So that's part of what she does. She works with kids with fine motor skills and so on as well. I always draw on my family's experience. I mean, these things, and having six children means that we've been through a lot of these different issues. So that was something that really interested me. 
So all of that's part of character, but then also, I suppose, for Phoebe, it's kind of this notion of touch and the senses. And so the senses, right from the start, I knew that that would be important. But that's all I know. I literally, I don't make character notes. I don't do all of the things I probably should do. And I just sort of start writing chapter one. So Phoebe's riding her horse in, in the rain. And, and she comes across a man who's lying unconscious on the path. Now, in that first chapter, though, yeah, we find out, I guess, a little bit about Phoebe and how she sees things, how she approaches things. She's competent, she's capable, but it is that classic, like a man walks into the room situation. How does she deal with this and what does this mean? Um, so that's the beginning of the novel. I spend a month on chapter one, getting all those things right. Um, and I guess in that process, I'm probably planning and plotting um, informally, um, but I don't write much of that down. Yeah, so that first chapter is really about you diving into the character and getting to know her. Yeah. And at that point, do you know what her past is or does that sort of emerge as well? Because that's the challenge that she takes forward that needs to be resolved, doesn't yeah. it? No, look, it is um, very much where that is resolved. Usually I kind of have it in chapter one or I have some idea about it. Um, Phoebe's wound, um, a few spoilers, but you find this out very quickly anyway, of course. Um, Phoebe's wound is that she had an abusive father and he used to shut her in, in or you might shut her in a cupboard. And so she has a real fear of the dark and she has a fear of enclosed spaces. And so in chapter one, she takes um, Finn, the male character, into a shed and the door closes and she's plunged into darkness. So I didn't go through all that backstory, obviously, in chapter one, but, you know, she stiffens, she reacts to that darkness. Um, and that's probably something I've got a bit better at doing the more I've written, I suppose. So that was just very, that slipped in very, very easily. It's not explained for, for quite a while, um, certainly why she has this particular fear. But that's something that does go to her character. And so it's something that, um, yeah, is a real theme in the book. Um, and it relates to the relationship between the characters as well. And since we're talking about characters, we have to talk about Sin Torrison. He's a, <laughs> another hunky Scandinavian. Is this a thing for you, Penn? Do you have a thing for Scandinavian men? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, to an extent. Um, the first book I ever wrote, which was on the same page, which is very much a romantic comedy, um, I had a character called Lars and he was born in Norway. And I'd written about 130,000 words of that first novel and um, I sent it for an edit and the editor actually came back to me and said when are you going to give Lars a last name and I literally kind of googled last names for Lars and I actually came up with Amundsen and he was a very very well-known explorer it was sort of Scott and Amundsen their race to the South Pole yeah that's um, right. and so that Amundsen name came up and that actually led me to my second book in at the deep end um, that's Pierre Amundsen who you know he is some distant relative of the original role to Munson. So that was the start of my um, Norwegian journey, very random. And since then, actually, Sin is a cousin of Pear, who has a brother at all. So it's not like they're just randomly all in these different places in Australia. There, It's kind of only a little thread because they're all standalone books. But, but the characters would know that there is somebody else who's actually moved to Australia. I love that because I've read all of your novels. It's those little Easter eggs throughout that you think ah yes he's such and such's cousin and as you say it does give them a reason to be in Australia and to sometimes stay in Australia as well because they do have that yeah. connection yeah and often it's I mean the reason too I suppose many of the men I write because they are Norway they've got to have a reason to come um, 
in the UN, obviously there are people, there are often a, a European delegates or, you know, delegates from all over the place. And so often these characters, whether they work in the environmental sense or in legal sense, yes. and that's come from convenient to have a man who might come from another country coming in for, for a certain reason relating to an area of interest. And I suppose that's an area I've worked in those areas and I have some knowledge about the, the legal um, framework um, for a lot of environmental um, and criminal areas. So that brings that into. Yeah. Can I just say as an aside, you know this, but I think this is one of the reasons why you have a, quite a few male readers as well, because my husband, for example, he works in uh, an environmental industry and he loves your novels. In fact, when they come out every January, he snaffles them straight away off me. I'm not allowed to read it until he is done. Um, and he loves, I mean, I think he likes all the sexy bits as well, but um, having that environmental issue and you always have a an interesting plot as well um, with a bit of a mystery to be solved so do you know if you have a lot of male readers or I'm, I'm sure John is not the only one <laughs> no I think I do have a number of male readers it's I mean it's interesting I think the bias is much more towards female readers because I write than the uh, female's protagonist um, in the stories I think that often draws women in they're women reading about other women Mm. Um, but, yeah, I do have um, some male readers and sometimes they are the comments I get that, um, oh, oh, you're actually discussing this environmental issue in there. Um, that's wonderful, but it's also a little bit frustrating because with romance, of course, people just think it's about, you know, person A meeting person B and that's all it's about. Whereas there's so much more and it's not just me, obviously, but so much of romance. It covers so many issues that are relevant to to the greater world and to people's lives. Yeah, of course. There's family dynamics and social concerns and psychological depths that you dive into. I mean, yeah, romance ain't just romance, folks. Um, so uh, with the characters, how do you get into the voice of your characters? Is it the dialogue, the inner dialogue, people's actions? How does that all come together for you, Pen, when you're writing? That probably go goes back to my my taking a long time to write chapter one as well because chapter one I really get the voice now I might refine that by the time I finish the book so there'll be certain things where I think the voice is quite right but essentially chapter one um and so then I know what their character's background is I know what sort of person they are I know what career they have and that pretty much gives me voice so starting from scratch and I know my um my publisher when she first read that oh it's probably a little bit more melancholy you know than than some of your other other books and and it was that was really tricky. I think, well, it, she's got a lot of reasons to be melancholy. So, I mean, you have to sort of strengthen that even more so, I think, through the book. So she's um, a character people can relate to. So there's a real reason um, for her to be like that. But that's very much goes to voice. And often, and this was something that was suggested in edits for that particular character, um, how does she relate to other people that aren't the heroes? With heroes, she was, you know, more melancholy because he reminded her of certain things. Um, whereas with her good friends or with people in the community, there was a much lighter, brighter voice. And so that was really nice to be able to bring that in, and it's probably very important to bring that in um, because that, of course, is an element of, of the character as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, voice first in. And in a, um, certainly the inner thoughts were inside that main character's head, but it, invariably with me, the character will be interested in something with Phoebe um, in Clouds, sense of touch the senses generally so there's a lot of that in that book um starting from scratch Shafi makes 
flowers out of crepe paper and so on. So there's a lot of sense of colour and a lot of her voice mm. is attached to that. A lot of the way she sees things is attached to that. And we hurry it in, in the deep end. It was, it was the ocean and it was the affinity with that. So, yeah, all that goes to voice as well and the way that the character actually sees things. I'd love to hear a little bit from Clouds where you do dive into voice, just to give listeners a bit of an idea of what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, so this is in the first chapter um, when they're in the in the shed, um, in very overcast conditions. The doors crash shut, plunging us into darkness. A whimper works its way up my throat. I swallow compulsively, stilling the memories, the old relentless fears. It's not locked, I say aloud, my voice thin and high. My eyes adjust. The window panes are filthy but rain streaked. I can see the outlines of gum trees through the glass. Light filters through the six half doors behind the shearing platform. Shearers would have pushed freshly shorn sheep through the doors to scramble down the ramps and quiver in the pens. I can breathe. Camelot's bit jangles. When he shifts a leg, his shoe scopes the concrete. I make out a stirrup iron, glistening dully in the darkness. Another gust of wind rattles the doors on their hinges. I can get out. I step carefully to the doors and push them open, ignoring the gusts of icy wind and rain as I kick half brick under one of the doors, creating a wedge. By the time I get back to the man, he's flat on the concrete. Concussion? Hypothermia? Either way, he has to warm up. Dragging six bales of hay off the stack, I lay them out like a bed. That's so good. Thank you. That just gives us such an atmospheric sense of what's happening, not only outside with the wild weather, but reflecting her inner dialogue as well, reminding herself, I can breathe, I can get out. And so it just really introduces us to that character, doesn't it? And gets us inside her head. Yeah, well, hopefully so. And also, she's a she's a very capable character. Yes. Phoebe, she's physically capable. She's really good. So it's really good to be able to show that too. Whereas if we're inside the head too much as far as being afraid of the dark, that's not her. Because yes, she has this fear, but she gets on with stuff. Yeah. And I guess that's going to voice and, and everything else. And as far as writing process too, I guess there's, there's that notion. Um, I think Michael Haig writes about it. A few writing teachers do. Um, about the character being in their identity, that they something bad has happened to them in their past, they've had that wound, yet um, they think, oh, I've dealt with that, I've moved on, this is what I'm doing now. Uh, and it's literally, in this particular case, it's the man that comes, you know, that she finds, that really challenges that and she really has to decide, well, has she got over that? The reason partly she gets over it is because she, she thinks she won't necessarily let people in. Will she take a risk? Will she let him in? Will she face her fears? And that's the theme that really goes through the book. Yeah. And part of your voice is also the fact that you write always in first person, present tense. Is that really deliberate? Is that, or just just the way it comes to you? It's just the way it comes, really. I think maybe because my first novel was, you know, a true romantic comedy. And so that was more the Bridget Jones lighter that's on the same page. And that has a very, I find a very different voice, that particular book to my other books. And but that is in first person. Um, so that when I went on to write my next book, In the Deep End, which um, was positioned as romantic comedy, but it was much more like a rural romance or a, a coastal romance. It still had that lightness of voice being in first person. And so that I really carried that on. And so sometimes it, it, there is less lightness of voice, probably with Phoebe and certainly with starting from scratch more melancholy, but it still is in first person and still in, in that character's head. And that's... Actually, when I write, and I, I'm excruciatingly slow writer, why well, I do write every day, but I'm not very fast. Um, because when I do write third person, when I'm writing, when they're thinking about their backstory or something that happened in the past, I find I write that 
much more quickly and it's more flowy really? and it's so much easier. Yes, because I'm telling a story. So maybe one day I might, my writing might be less excruciating <laughs> if I actually write a whole book in third person. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to the moment I do first person and for the rural, I think it, it speaks really well to um, well, that genre to an extent, but also it's a great way of seeing aspects of being in a country area and the sounds and the stars and the you know all the all the differences that, that we often appreciate where there are less people around and less busyness um, perhaps yeah. in that environment and it definitely I mean as soon as I start one of your chapters that first person and present tense immediately puts me in the scene like I'm there where am I what am I doing you know there's always a a beautiful description I can hear this I can see this I can feel that I'm there which I think works really well. Now, we talked a little bit before about readers and you and I were discussing earlier about genres and it's very hard to, I think it's very hard to put your book into a straight romance genre or a straight women's fiction genre because it has elements of all of that. Who do you think your readers are and are you conscious of their expectations? Um, if, if I was more conscious of them, maybe I'd be a big seller all around the world. Um, no, I just write. It starts with romance for me, even though that's not a strong enough element in my books for a lot of readers, which is interesting. So you know, a lot of people would say, well, I normally read crime, but I really enjoy this. Or, I read women more readings fiction. Or, I'm not a romance reader. I often get those sort of reviews. I'm not a romance reader, but... And so they do find something different and interesting in it. Mm. Uh, what drives the story for me is that, that aspect of character, that I have this certain character I start with, and that she has a certain wound and how is it going to work out that she actually ends up with this um guy for me at the end um so a lot of it's driven by that for me so it is romance but yeah it, and i think with romance it is such a broad genre it is so different and it's not you know it's like saying every crime novel is the same we have a, a police procedural novel and then you have a you know something like that as psychopathic killer and you know they're all very different too and we all look for different things in our crime novels yeah. um so yeah i think romance is is very much like that um yeah i agree um are there certain beats that you need to hit um particularly in relation to the love story i'm just thinking for people that are interested in writing this style mm -hmm. of story what are those beats that you need to hit or are you conscious of having to hit those beats i wasn't conscious when i first started writing but of course like most writers you know michelle um <laughs> yeah we read extensively and i guess that that was the same conscious thing that i knew what i needed when i'm reading or when i'm still reading a romance novel mm -hmm. um we need to have those characters usually to meet you know relatively early um in the story um we need to be curious about them we need to think for the books that i really enjoy often there is that real tension between the characters and i write very slow burn romances so um sometimes you think oh my goodness how are they ever going to get together and but that's what i love to read and i guess that's what i write so i put as many obstacles as i possibly can um they have to be different obstacles and i suppose that's something with romance you can't have romantic hero and heroine fighting over the same thing all the way through yeah. it's got to be different and that's where for me it's good that i usually have what i hope is a strong external plot so something keeping them apart so in clouds on the horizon um phoebe is protecting her sister and sin is a threat to her sister and so then she really has to keep pushing back pushing back because she wants to protect her sister and that comes first with her yeah um so certainly the characters being together and also i think just that there has to be something in both of those characters and that often comes up 
a lot more when you're editing, where you can imagine that they are going to be attracted to each other. They do have things in common. Um, when I write the characters with sort of environmental themes involved, I tend actually to have both characters will be an environmentalist. One might work for the UN and one might work for the lo local horseshoe environment committee. Um, but they don't argue about that sort of stuff because I tend to think that's often a fundamental thing with the characters and often those fundamental things apply to both characters because I like to think that they are going to get on well. They're going to have obviously love in the end but there's got to be respect and especially respect of their intellectual capabilities. I think that's so important. Um, up on Horseshoe Hill, I wrote a character, Jemima, and she was a farrier. So she hadn't finished school. She has dyslexia. Um, she, and it was something that was interesting when I wrote that character. And I really missed writing her. I still miss writing her because her language was often quite simple um, in some ways. And, of course, the love interest in there was, a, you know, he was a, a well-renowned vet who worked, you know, on in some big organisation. And so you think, you know, how are they ever going to be together? Um, but actually they, they were really good for each other, but it, you needed to go beyond certain elements of Jack's personality in order to discover that. So that's really important. So, yeah, things that they potentially have things in common, but it is a matter of them discovering what they actually do have in common. Yeah. Because at first glance you think, oh, that's not going to work. And often that's, I mean, that's wonderful in the animal world where people with um, Sintaris and like he's out of his environment. She can't see him at home to see whether he's got a dog or anything else. He's in her environment. But the way that he relates to her animals. Yes. Um, and she has the horses and then fundamentally when, then with the lamb. Um. There is a very cute lamb called Lottie in Clouds on the Horizon. I loved Lottie. And Lottie did give us an opportunity to see the very serious sin have a bit of a paternal side and a softer side. He did. And when only writing from one point of view, I need to have um, strong secondary characters. And I often have strong secondary animal characters um, because do. that's a great way of, um, yeah, because otherwise, how do you get to know um, the other character? Often it is through those interactions, as we all, you know, it's all very well to, to see somebody across a crowded room in real life and think, oh, they're rather attractive. But if you see them being unkind to somebody or, you know, they're not a nice person, then we go off them immediately. It doesn't matter what they look like. So Yeah, which also goes to character. So talk to me a little bit more about these points of tension that you throw in between the characters in this sort of love story. So we know in this story, Phoebe wants to protect her sister. So that is a point of conflict between her and Sin because he needs to know the truth and she's protecting her sister by saying it was her that had done the thing. Spoiler alert. Um, after that, like, is there a point where you go, oh, I actually need to resolve this? And you do, you resolve that. So then that's no longer a point of tension and they've moved on. And then do you think, oh gosh, it's too early for them to get together. I need to throw in another <laughs> point of yeah. tension or a conflict um, here. Well, it is very, it is like that. I mean, even in um, Saving Clouds and Rise and so on, that excerpt that I read earlier, you know, where she has his fear of the dark and so on. Um, so that's very early in the book. Um, you probably do another 50 pages and then Sin is really saying, look, you know, I need this information, get this information for me. And she's attracted to him. And then she has this thought that he wants something from me. That's why he's doing this. He's got an ulterior motive because that's what people are like. And she's had a relationship earlier where somebody wouldn't let her be herself and wanted something from her. So she pushes right back from that for example, and then we find out um, part of that because of what's happened in her childhood and also about this earlier relationship. So all of that is in, um, you know, the first third of the book, um, but they're all reasons for her being reluctant to trust somebody, um, to enter into a relationship. 
and that's all on the sort of the inner, the, the personal front. Um, but then we also have the um, external conflict, which is um, she's now lied to him and she said, well, it was me who did something wrong with the syndicate um, and she's doing that to protect her sister. So that's the external conflict. So even if she gets closer and closer to him, she thinks, oh, my goodness, how's he going to deal with this um, that I've actually lied to him as well? Yeah, yeah. So that obviously creates another point of tension. And does there always have to be a happily ever after? Is that what readers expect? It is. Well, it's certainly in a romance. It's different mm-hmm. in a love story, of course, with, um, you know, you have Anna Crane and Anna for Anna going under the train. That's okay, but not in a romance. A romance, you do need to have a happy ending. I always do when I think in my romance, like, I don't do it that there's never that man that has to save the woman. Absolutely not. I think the well, she saves are, him, right? She saves him does. in the first chapter. Exactly. <laughs> and he only acknowledges it in the last chapter. That's so right. So probably without him acknowledging it, then maybe they couldn't get together anyway. So I like to think, look, even if something awful happened or that guy disappeared, that is not the end of her world at all. But she obviously, she suffers heartbreak and that's terrible. But she has actually found out a lot about herself in the course of what has happened. So, yes, she's come from outside and he's prompted her to sort of perhaps go from that identity idea to her, you know, her essence, what she really would have been like without this early wound or how she's actually faced yeah. that wound and moved on from it. So that has all happened. She has a lot more insight into her character at the end of this period and it's not my romances don't go for just a few weeks. It usually is, you know, seven eight nine months a year over that course of that year um that she does have some sort of resolution and that's often through the interactions the the love interest is the instigator of it but then she talks to often people the farmer up the road or whatever and they all when she's really saying oh gee am i thinking like this and they'll really come back at her and say yeah that is a real problem for you (laughs) and they've seen that but they've never taken her on with it or she's never really faced it with other people. So a lot of people are reflecting back at her um, that, yeah, there are certain issues. Um, yeah. And hopefully finally she does face that. But, yes, there is a happy ending and I do like a happy ending. I do too. I'm guessing it's no surprise that the dog in Clouds on the Horizon is called Wickham. I, I do see an element of Elizabeth Bennet and the points of conflict, getting closer to the object of their affection and then pulling back. I mean, Jane Austen, is she a bit of a guiding light? Absolutely. Jane is just a guiding light for everything. Yes, absolutely. And I've actually, my novel, it's with publisher at the moment, so that'll be out in January next year. But that's probably as close as I've got to an overall, as far as it's a persuasion story, really. The female character, Patience, is the one who goes off to sea and makes the fortune. So that was a real kind of twisting it around. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I just think, and, and I mean, Austin's just such a brilliant um, example of, you know, the inner turmoil, you know, obviously thinking the wrong thing about characters. And there's also the external conflict, which in that particular case, of course, was um, position society or class or, or family, whereas I have more contemporary themes but I think Austin just does those character arcs, you know, like many yeah. other writers obviously um, do that absolutely beautiful. I grew up very much in the classics in those days. My parents used to subscribe to the Reader's Digest classics. So we had all of D.H. Lawrence or Somerset or, or um, Dickens. And I just read my way through there, um, you know, when I was sort of 11, 12, 13, I suppose. I only really discovered romance when I was uh, a teenager, really, in my teens but I'm now looking back I certainly found every bit of romance there ever was in, in the other books I was reading not such a lot in D.H. Lawrence but 
but um, Lady Chatterley's love are really interesting. Oh. But certainly things like Dickens and Great Expectations and, and of course, and you know, Austen was there as well, another wonderful writer. Yeah, love Austen. What would we do without her? I know. I know. My daughter's a, um, an English teacher and well, she's doing her PhD and, and she just absolutely knows everything about Austen. So I call her my sort of my go-to literary girl and I just check things and we've, I'm on the same page which is being re-released again this year and there's um, there's a lot of specific Austen because um, the protagonist in that story is a writer um, and so it's wonderful with Pip because she knows everything about everything about Austen having studied it intensely so um, yeah. yeah oh that's wonderful uh, I don't think I've met Pip yet we'll have to get together no, and talk she's, Austen yeah, she maybe should. we should have an Austen tea party or something like that and would be lovely all about yes. Jane um, to me about outlining and plotting, I know you start with the first chapter. Do you know what's going to happen or does it just flow from your pen? No, I don't know what's going to happen generally. Um, I know there'll be certain conflicts, so I really need to work that out. And that's usually in the first few chapters. And I do agonise over that, what the external plot will be. So whether it's an illegal horse racing syndicate or um, there's a sunk ship in another one of my books or you know, various things happen um, that mean that they, there's going to be something pushing the characters apart. So I have some idea of that. Um, but being a romance as well, and as I think this is something that I like as a reader, you want the characters to be together in, in various ways. So I do, um, if there's a chapter without the characters being together, usually the next chapter, and it's not it's not a false thing. It's just that's kind of the right thing to happen because as far as the character I'd go, the characters develop. And the character develops through this conflict that um, they're experiencing through their interactions with the other character. So it's quite a natural thing. It's not just, it's not, it's not really a romance thing even necessarily. It's just something that I know they have to be together. But those seeds, I mean, I just, I don't know, usually there's something between my characters. And this is even something that editors sometimes don't get. I've had some brilliant editors, but not all of them are just strictly romance editors. So, so on the right track, for example, um, here I had a real fascination with um, Golden's collarbone, that collarbone thing. Yes. And the editor just said, why, why is he keep on doing the collarbone thing? And I, was, I thought, that's just what he sees. Collarbones are good, aren't they? And I asked a few it's people. Sexy. Having, yes, that's what I thought. Now that's that gorgeous friend James who's gay. And then I said, oh, sexy. Collarbones are sexy. It goes every way, doesn't it? So, anyway, but with Finn and Phoebe, it was the pulse thing. And that had started like she'd felt for his pulse and she was worried that, you know, she'd lost him in chapter one. And so she kind of goes for the pulse. So there were, not that I planned that, but every time when something came up in a certain scene and whether they were, you know, the hands touched or whatever else it was, I thought, oh, that's a nice thing. She can be aware of his pulse again. Yeah, right. It's a nice little motif that runs through. Do you have that walking time, that, that dreaming time in the mornings or do, like before you sit down to work, do you have a little think about what's going to happen? Yeah, often actually before I get up, and I get up usually pretty early, I'm up usually by six and I, that's my really productive time if I write between. Now the kids are all off at school. I didn't used to, to do that. I used to have to get up a lot earlier. But now <laughs> sort of between six and nine or ten, ideally, I just um, sit on my bed um, with a cup of tea and my laptop. And so before that, ideally, I you know work out what's going to happen. But I really do make myself just work. If it's a work day, mm -hmm. I just sit and I make myself do it. And if I'm not sure what's happening with the scene, usually the senses, that's something. Um, Christine Wells, who's a um, well-regarded um, Australian author of historicals and also romance. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I went to a workshop with her once and she was saying, well, you're stuck. 
um, think about the senses. Well, you know, what are the birds doing? What's happening with the weather? What's with this? And I'd very much get into that. And particularly if that can happen um, through the main character's occupation with um, Jemima mm. the farrier, it was wonderful because there's so much stuff happening when you're shoeing a horse to do with, you know, heating the heating shoes if you do hot shoeing and the clang of the hammer and the anvil and so on. Um, with clouds, it was great with the senses because then Phoebe had a number of children that she treated and so then she could see things in that particular way. So that often is a good way to get into a scene as well. So I do make myself right. Sometimes a whole day might technically be wasted, but I need to have written those paragraphs to know that that's totally wrong. And if okay. I know that's totally wrong, then I work out what's right. So forcing this, for me, forcing myself to actually sit down and write works really well. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's not right, but then I know what needs to happen. And that's mm. the same with the beats. We mentioned beats earlier. I don't plot them as such, but I just instinctually, I think, no, that, no, that's too quiet or that's not quite right. We need something more of that. So then I'll go back. Sometimes you can put it in or sometimes it's just a matter of starting again in that particular scene. But I, I really started chapter one and I keep going. Occasionally something comes up and I think, oh, that's not right there, but I think it will be okay later on. So I just literally do cut and paste and whack it into the end of the document. I really like that idea of if you don't know what to write or you're stuck, just start with the senses. That's really good advice Yeah, because then you're just working your way into it, right? Yeah. And it's what, I mean, even with, you know, animals bird by bird, it's how it starts, isn't it? With that that notion of, you know, if you don't know what to write, just do one thing at a time, you know, bird by bird. It's how you get that assignment done. Um, And that's that's what I do. Start with something like that. It's never wasted. And particularly if it's something to do with the senses um, or with what's happening around that character, I think that's really useful in that that's as far as voice goes. It's something that works for me. And then does every scene have to have some kind of tension or conflict or move the plot forward? Like, is that what you mean when you say, I know I've written it, but it's not quite right because it doesn't have X, Y or Z? Yeah, very much so. And I think I don't even get that far into it if it's not right. So I can have a character riding a horse in the, in a country lane and then, you know, something will happen. But then often the characters, because I'm, I'm inside the character's head, but it's not like there's so much internal dialogue happening all the time. Um, and I think that can be a problem when I come to edit and the, the, my editor will say, it's good to show not to tell and you have all these good dialogue and you have all these things going on but we actually need to see what's inside the characters head sometimes what what you're thinking about things and so that might be somewhere it's more likely that yeah i probably put something in something will trigger a, a recollection or a memory and that's a good thing about having the strong link to um to the environment the character's mm-hmm. living in i think because then it's, it's bird song and that will trigger something from a childhood memory or it's bird song and that will then um, they'll be thinking about something that happened perhaps with the with the other character. That's a beautiful segue into the topic of backstory, my old bugbear. Um, that's a great example, isn't it? So by going in via the senses, i.e. listening to birdsong, that can trigger a memory and she can go down that memory path. Is that generally how it works for you in terms of weaving in backstory? Yeah, um, I, I have a very, like you, Michelle, I have a tricky relationship with backstory. Clouds on the horizon actually wasn't, I mean, that was a relief. And I think even my publisher was really surprised when she got back to me and said, this one doesn't have nearly as many problems as you get your last two. And certainly with Up on Horseshoe Hill and with starting from scratch, um, 
yeah, I had real backstory issues and I've got a few sort of notes on that. Um, Do share. <laughs> okay, well, for example, with Upper Horseshoe Hill, so this is Jemima the Farrier. Um, so, okay, so this is paraphrasing, but we have immediate sympathy for the character after the heartbreaking opening. Um, but this starts to waver as we are reminded about this over and over without being sure what happened to make her this way or any variation in her response. Um, I understand you might be reserving the details from bed hooks into the narrative, um, but we know some of this information as well. We need to feel it as a reader. So the mother's death, the death of the horses, the path slow passing, you know. Wind, wind, wind. wind. <laughs> and all of these things. And if these were seeded through the first third or half, I think this might help explain the caution of fearfulness in Jemima's character and engender more reader sympathy for her. And that was absolutely spot on. Thank you, Jane McCoy. <laughs> um, well, interestingly, Horseshoe Hill was a book, when I sent it off, it was one of those, I thought, oh, nailed that. You know, I'm really happy with that book. And it was probably one that oh. was most tortured in backstory way because I had put so much backstory in the end of the book. Um, but then, as, as Joe also mentions later on, it's also not just why aren't the characters getting together or why is she continually pushing away, but it's like, is there something wrong with him? Is that why? And that's not good either. So we're not reflecting well on either character. So I've put all of that, um, well, so much of that backstory all into the front. And the way I did that was um, often, yes, sort of through the senses, she had a very traumatic experiences with these horses, um, uh, dying at a, at a thoroughbred stud where she was working and she was the only person there and it was the middle of the night and, it was, um, and this was the external thing as well um, that had been, you know, leading up to this and lots of tension leading up to that but that was something that had to be brought right forward to the beginning of the story so really as the hero comes in he says, well, I'm investigating what happened at Thornbrook Stud, you know, 10 years ago and then pretty much the next chapter uh, she's well, she bites her nails and that's all part of it and she's looking at her nails and, and so on, and then she thinks that, delves into that. Do you always weave it in via those sort of memories, or are you ever tempted to use flashbacks? Yeah, I have, although I think because we're inside the character's head anyway, and often because of the way these the characters develop, they haven't really wanted to face this, and that's why Jemima doesn't want to face it. She thinks, okay, that happened, that was terrible, put that behind me. I don't want to look at it again. And, and so in that way, and I think we all do that as a, you know, and that's, that sometimes can be a good thing, obviously, that we don't necessarily have things that trigger us. Mm. And that is important, but if it's stopping us living our life as fully as we would like to, then that's probably something that has to be faced in some way. Yeah. And so then the character will be facing that. I am always pretty careful. I write... Um, I usually have a psychologist character of some sort in my stories because I do give my heroines a lot to go through. Mm -hmm. And so often there is that, that kind of bounce back. But they have, it's not like you could just fix yourself all that, let alone this man can come in and fix you. It doesn't work like that. And usually there has been some sort of a element of therapy earlier on. And so sometimes it's just a matter of, oh, oh not just, but um, the character perhaps seeing psychologist again or thinking through what has worked for them in the past and reinforcing that. And so they can move on. Um, yeah, like with clouds on the horizon, she gets through that first 
chapter where she feels like she's locked in the sheds she talks her way out of that but then other things happen throughout the novel where she kind of regresses a little bit doesn't she and then she needs is it mandy the psychologist yeah, yes mandy, mandy yeah comes in and just yeah. gives her a bit of a talking yeah. to and reminds her yeah that's right and i love i love mandy, I love mandy and too turned out mandy was a, mandy was a bit of a swinger and she was I know. Lived a really exciting life no i actually reprised her from it i had written her in another book because she had a welsh mountain pony stud which was relevant in this novella i wrote and then when Mandy came back, you know, as, as a more relevant character in this particular book as the psychologist, um, I thought, oh, Mandy's got, Mandy's still quite a lot. Mandy's back. I feel like we all need a Mandy because not only is she kind of good on the psychology side, but at the end she says, come on, we haven't seen you down at the pub for a while and drags her off for a cocktail. We all need a Mandy in our life, I think. Um since we're talking about editing, is there anything else you'd like to share with us on that editorial Ooh. process now? Because I know that you're a very clean writer. Well, and I think that well, I think that's a it's a bit of a danger in that my writing is clean, but that's only I think that's my anal lawyer um, <laughs> quality. So I'm sort of getting the story out there. So even if um, my publisher and the editors are being really kind to me because it's very neat and tidy and they're nice enough sentences and so on, but. If that doesn't move the story forward, it's useless. And so often I think I read that whole hundred and odd thousand words and I send it off and I think, right, that'll make sense to me. You yeah, you need somebody to have those yeah. fresh eyes on it to really say, well, this isn't quite working well. Um, I mentioned that it was a backstory was a really big problem with Up on Horseshoe Hill with starting from scratch, my novel Before Clouds. And that was a difficult um, the characters in that story, they'd actually known each other as children. They'd been very best friends and that had gone into adolescence. Um, and certainly the male character had started having feelings for the female character, but she was a couple of years older, so that friendship had very much broken up. And then 10 years later, he comes back into town. And so that was very much a dual narrative thing. And so then I had all this, I think I was trying to deal with it with what was kind of a combination of flashbacks and backstory and whatever else. And, and I think it was a shambles. And so there I was thinking I, I had sent in this nice clean manuscript on the surface, but it was a shambles underneath. And so then I really had to go through chapter by chapter and really work out what was the backstory. Um, and that was something, and that was actually a good suggestion by publisher and editor that as well, because, I mean, uh, they were in the country, so that was really important. There was the environmental side of it too, because um, they're both working in the environment. But they also, the backstory took place in Canberra when they were teenagers and also in um, Argentina, in Argentina yeah. when they were children. That's right. So it was, and that was a suggestion that was made, which was bring the character of those places so we can place the reader more carefully in the story. So with Argentina, then I was then not talking about the art, the colours, because Safi yes. was all about colour. And so it was the colours of the, you know, the terracotta shingles on the roof or the, the, um, the bougainvillea and those sorts of things are very much related to Argentina. Then it was, um, it was Canberra. And so then there were certain elements of Canberra that people would um, recognise as well. And then there was, you know, Horseshoe Hill where the novel was set. So I thought that was a that was a really good practical way for me to separate those areas and to, to bring that story together. Yeah, I loved that story, the Argentinian side of the story actually, and unravelling the story of the parents and what had actually happened. Yeah. It was really well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I didn't know what had happened until I was writing. So I was oh, really, really two thirds into the novel. I knew that there'd been a falling out and there was a reason why the character's mother had become an alcoholic and, and all these things had happened. But I wasn't sure what happened because it was the characters that both of their mothers were best friends yes. and something happened. And so then I wasn't actually sure what happened with 
those best friends um, until I was really writing into it. And then when I came up with what did happen, um, that was that was right for it. I mean, it was good and it kind of explained all these awful things. But, I mean, that's like with Clouds on the Horizon. I think I'd written that, um, I had, and an editor came back and said, but, you know, in the first chapter, you know, you've got Sin fell out of a van in the middle of the night. Hmm. Why was he in the van? I thought, hmm. It was good to get that re- resolved, actually, in the last couple of chapters. <laughs> yeah, editors, I think, just they are everything. I think gold. they just do absolute gold, yeah, and they do just find things. And, and I am fortunate in that, um, you know, I don't have a lot of beta readers or anything like that, really. I sort of send it off and then, yeah, publishers look at it and then it goes to editorial. Yeah, yeah. And then I work really, really hard. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a lot of work. The most, oh, I know for a lot of writers, or certainly for me, I have to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> Since we are in the same writers group, and I know people are curious about how writers groups work, it's not all wine and spa and chocolate. Um, tell me what the writers group does for you in the writing process, particularly in that first instance when you're starting the novel. I guess just talking out those that early chapter particularly um, is really, really valuable. Um, but I think primarily, I think as you know too, Michelle, it's the trust within the writer's group. I mean, I know you don't talk about your own writing much in this podcast, but for all the listeners out there, Michelle is a beautiful, beautiful writer. And the fact that somebody who writes those magnificent, beautiful sentences like Michelle, you know, is, is just so generous and, and helpful and, you know, we're all very supportive of each other and each other's writing. And I think because we are all writers um, that would have written for, you know, quite a period of time, all of us, um, I think we really appreciate that we all have different voices. And so it's, no, you can't say, well, change that or why don't you do it like this or whatever. We all know we want to read stories and we all read, of course, widely in very different genres. And so we just want to help each other to that story, okay, I'm not quite sure why that character is thinking like this. Or if that character has that particular wound, mightn't they um, respond in a certain way? So it's very much, isn't it, from a, it's so constructive, it's yeah. from a place of trust. And I think that's where, yeah, the writing group is really, really important. And also just to vent, obviously. <laughs> when things don't go wrong, go right. That's right, go right. And everybody brings a slightly different skill like Laura edits for a living, so she brings that real editorial eye, but she has that publishing and that marketing and publicity side, so she'll kind of bring that into her feedback as well. And then Pam's really good on deep point of view and craft yeah. aspects, so she'll bring that mm. in. And Yeah, everybody has yeah. this sort of different skill, so. don't they, to bring. And, and sometimes it's just how to get somebody from point A to point B, like didn't one of us have someone up a tree once and had to try and figure out how to get them down? And, oh, my God, all the wonderful, you know, incredible sort of solutions that you would yep. never have thought of on your own. It's just fascinating how it all works. Exactly. That's right. So, I mean, often that is that very early sort of workshopping. And probably, um, I think you might do this with um, with your husband too, but sometimes I just talk at my husband as we're walking. <laughs> we go for long-distance walks. And... He knows now, after this many books, that if he, it's not that he should really say anything. And when he does say anything, it's often wrong. No, I didn't mean that. But just talking aloud, talking it out, talking it out, talking it out, then you know what works and doesn't work. And I really recommend that for um, you need them without a writing group or without somebody to talk at, just to you know to find another another writer, preferably. 
um, but you can talk things out with because I think we work out so much and it just unlock the unties things in yeah. our minds. Um, if we've got a difficult plot point or something that is or isn't yeah. working. I remember um, Alison Tate once saying that she was in the post office and she got to the front of the queue and she was just talking to herself and, and then she realised that everybody was looking at her quite strangely because she had been nutting out and she'd been so deep in nutting out. I mean, I often talk to myself on my walks yeah. and then have to pretend that I'm actually on the phone. Yeah. But I think it is and it's a different way of yeah. thinking and yeah, and I mean, often that's with you know, children or when mm. you're teaching, you know, it, it would be great for somebody to learn a skill is to actually teach it to somebody else. And I think that really does help. And even on those physical aspects of novel writing. So, for example, we've got Jo Nell, who's a, a GP. We've got Terry Green, who's a physio. Now, you have a situation in Clouds, for example, where this young woman, Phoebe, has to get this presumably heavier man onto some hay bales and she's got to, you know, check his pulse and all this sort of stuff and get his arm out of his, you know. And so Terry's great on that stuff, isn't she? She really will have some, look, you can't do that with somebody's arm or, you know, that's not the right position. Or if a smaller person wants to lift a heavier person, this is the best way to do it. Um, and then, you know, um, because that is also a medical situation, Joe might come in and say, look, this is what somebody's pulse might be, or this is, you know, how somebody might be poisoned or whatever it might be. So it's great to be, I mean, even if you don't have a writer's group, I just guess just drawing on those skills of people around you can really help too. I mean, you've helped me from the legal side of things before I went too far down a particular track. And um, and I know Ray Cairns, who, who used to be a youth worker, you know, one of my chapters she read and she said, look, in that situation, person who is in child protection wouldn't actually touch that child not even to comfort them or what you know just helping people before they go too far down a particular track has also been incredibly useful yeah yeah but I think I think also though that it's important I'm often to just write the Mm. scene as you want to write it and then you then you go back and check those things afterwards I think I like the writing craft, like we all know so much writing craft, but often it is really good just to write, instinctually write your story, and then it's great to actually go back, obviously, and, and check things afterwards to see that you've done it properly. It's actually Jonelle, George Saunders, all of us, I think, a um, wonderful book on writing craft, and I've been fascinated. I've, I've read it once and I'll write it again, but he makes a comment, um, so this is a swim in the pond in the rain, he makes a, a comment really was saying, well, in this book, and he's a very well-known writing teacher and beautiful writer, saying, but there are parts in this book where, you know, you'd say, oh, you know, that that really, that's a light bulb moment for me, that really resonated with me. And he makes the point, it's probably just vindicating what you do. You probably do that instinctually or you do it naturally. And sometimes, though, if you, if you say, you know, no, that doesn't work for me, then that's that's your assured writing voice saying, no, I do it in this different way. And and it's good as a writer. I think you have to back yourself mm. to an extent to say that this is the way it, right, it happens for me. And that's always my kind of my one bit of writing advice, I suppose, if I have any, is finish the book <laughs> because then then you can go back. You know, otherwise you're so critical. You know, we're all so critical of ourselves as we go through because scene by scene, chapter by chapter, you think, where is this going? What does it mean? Whatever words, if you have that whole book to work with, you know your characters well, and I think that gives you a lot more confidence in knowing what work, what what is working, what isn't, yeah. what's right, and what isn't. 
for that particular story. And trying to figure out how a woman is going to lift a man before you've written the scene is actually just a big procrastination thing, That's isn't right. it, really? Or in a show, but yes. <laughs> but it's I good to have that. afterwards. Definitely it's in great that to editing. Have afterwards. Yeah. It is great yeah. to have afterwards. And it's amazing how much you can change once you've actually written it. Well, my um, my brother-in-law's a surgeon and so I always put the, the stitching bits, you know, and usually being very stitching in my books for some reason. Um, and I have a sister who's a pathologist and so she's really good on all the blood stuff. But, yeah, I write it all and, you know, I just sort of send it off to um, Margaret and, and say, um, yeah. can you look at this, please? Yeah. And they're all very technical about it, but you can't. That's the thing, I mean, with research, with each of my novels, and I'm sure with, you know, so many novels, you know, it's environment or it's, you know, Antarctic exploration and it's um, sensory issues with children and there's so much research because you don't put that in your book anyway. It's just through the characters as it's relevant to the characters. So we do all that background research, but it comes a time where we just got to sit down and write that scene and put in the bits that are relevant to exploring the character and what's relevant. To their, often to their character arc, actually, as they're treating a child or something. In Phoebe's case, only a little bit of that is relevant. But, yes, write the scene first. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting that message. Pen's got her mum voice on. She's telling me, get writing, well, even, Michelle. I mean, Stop procrastinating. Yeah, is that, no, and even in that scene, if, okay, the, the, child, the person shouldn't touch the other child, mm. you know, then, but then you've actually got those emotions in that, I want to put my arms around them. I want to hold yeah. them. I want to come. So even though, okay, you've got to pull back from that physical side of it, but emotionally, mentally, then they're, they're actually thinking exactly that same thing. How can I comfort this child, you know, in the way that I want to do so? So that it is the emotion that, that's more important than the bits and pieces. And I suppose that's the same, you know, you haven't asked me about sex scenes yet, Michelle, but <sighs> as far as the emotion goes in that, it, what's important is, the issues of how the character's feeling yeah, and yeah. what they're feeling and how they're feeling about each other too, rather than the mechanics. So, Penelope Janu, how do you write a sex scene? I just answered that. Okay. <laughs> it's about the I emotion. Really, <laughs> it's about the emotion. I really, and some people don't enjoy, you know, they yeah. don't find it comfortable to write sex scenes at all. I really, yeah, I enjoy writing the sex scenes in that I think, okay, because I do the slow burn, I've got over 100,000 mm. words for them just to hold hands, <laughs> let alone kiss, let alone anything else. And so it's just it's just part of the growth of their relationship. It's a very natural part of their growth of their relationship. And now, thankfully, um, there's so much more explicit consent in sex scenes now and in touching generally. Um but that's a fantastic element. I love writing that aspect of it too. And there's also a lot of dialogue. I mean, my characters, I don't know that they could have sex if they didn't talk. Yeah. They just have to talk. And they talk, I don't know, well, my poor heroes, maybe they want me to think, oh, for God's sake, stop talking. But no, no, they talk. Talk a lot. Which is part of the emotion. I, I think you write sex scenes really well. I always think of um, your books as a thinking woman's romance because it does have that that element of talking. They're both usually just very intellectual people. Um, there's not those overblown descriptions that sometimes people do associate with romance. I feel like it's quite understated. It's always sexy. Do you ever think, oh, I need to pull back or are there certain words that you would just never use? Are you conscious of that or, or how does that work for yeah, you? Not really. I mean, I use the words um, generally if, if it's relevant to, 
to name a body part, then mm. it would be what I think the character would say. So normally I don't think, I think in one book, he meant, he was talking about his own appendage and he said cock. And I think that's not a word yeah. I would ever really use, but, but he would he say would. that. So yeah. He would. So he said cock. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, um, no, I sort of do a bit of euphemism. I mean, look, er yeah. erection, and I know it's a penis, but I no, I don't tend to call it that. So yeah. it's just more, you know, like, and it's more than that's used to touch or appeal or something. Yeah. Oh, he's clearly aroused. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I don't hide anything or I don't do anything differently. But mm -hmm. I think, and that's something else I think in, um, I suppose, in addition to dialogue, often there's humour. There's really mm. good humour that can come out, I think, when you're, you know, physically close. Um I don't know with, you know, with one of my characters, in, I was in Horseshoe Hill where the female character hadn't had a lot of experience and so everything was going along very slowly and she said to him, you know, and this is after all this big external conflict that was still going on, but she said, I trust you. And, you know, and he was sort of anxious about this first, you know, sexual encounter with her. He was saying, oh, well, why do you have to say that right now? Like, it's just, <laughs> I trust you because he wouldn't know that was going to happen. So, yeah, like I think it's a great way to show how the characters develop. And also then, and I, it tends to happen towards the end because I yeah. think, to me, if it was just... A, gratuitous. A, it's never gratuitous yeah, in your novels, I don't it, think. No, it isn't. No. And because I kind of lose... I, well, I think that's the thing too. It has to be at the end because that's only when they're ready to, to have that real physical closeness. And mm -hmm. so some books I know that they can have brilliant sex in the first chapter and that's a brilliant sex scene, mm. but... I, I wouldn't say that I could just write that sort of a sex scene at all. Well, I know I can't. I, for me, it's all about the characters, all about the emotions, and that's only very likely to happen at the end because there has to be so much more that comes with yeah, that. Yeah, it has to serve a purpose, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, now, we've got a couple of questions that have come in from readers. So the first one is from Natasha Horan, who um, is Tash AAA.3 on Instagram. Tash actually won copy of clouds on the horizon in the competition this month um she says here's my question can tash please be the name of the cowgirl in the next book penelope writes <laughs> i like your name tash actually i think natasha is a, a really lovely mm. name and names are really important i have to name those characters straight away and names i think i said as far as the norwegian name amundsen yeah. was important in my characters but also um i think in on the right track which was my first rural that was had a lot of horse racing stuff in it and there was a character i actually named her golden slipper yeah her surname was slipper yeah and then in it it's oh it's a bit you know twee like we're calling her gold i mean her father was a jockey and her grandfather was a horse trainer but that book actually ended up becoming all about her relationship with her grandfather and he was in absolutely um, passionate about eucalypts and he named her because the father couldn't look after her and it was golden bottle of course and so that golden yeah it was interesting anyway it all came from yeah. slipper but we needed the golden so there are a few a few things like that but um yeah names are very important so i, I think of them early on so tash i will keep that in mind thank <laughs> you're you you're in with a chance there tash um her serious question was when you have writer's block what's the best way to get through that Oh, well, I think one of those answers is just to sit at my desk and keep writing. Mm. Um, and the other is often to go for a walk, dig in the garden, go for a rad. Um, yeah, do something physical. Mm. I think that really helps. Um, and then come back and sit at the desk because I think with my writing schedule, you know, I'm really doing sort of one book a year, so it's it's a full-time job. So I do have to really sit down and write. Yep, so yeah. write through right it. Through so, look, it. and I've been very fortunate that I am. Uh, and I think different writers having I mean, difficulty in writing that, that can 
occur in all different ways and I have great sympathy for a lot of writers who do have issues with that and they often find different ways to to work through that Mm. but um, that's what works for me. Mm. And the lovely Vani, who we both know, she's on Instagram at fiction.primer. She asks, can you ask Penelope about what makes a compelling character for her, both in how she writes her protagonists, but also the characters that stand out for Penelope from other people's work slash books? It's a good question. Yes, it is, isn't it? I've got a few parts to it. Yeah, compelling. Well, characters that interest me, I said, often it's their occupations kind of get me going, whether they're mm. school teacher or whatever it is, or their hobbies or what they do. So that is a really important aspect of character. Um, for me, um, yes, I like a complicated past. I think I think earlier on you asked about, well, you know, what inspires me as far as a mm. character goes to. Um, I worked as an academic. That was most of my legal career is working as a legal academic. So I had lots and lots of students who were in their 20s. And it's such a privilege to work with people of that age group. I mean, they're, they're clever and they're optimistic and they've got so much drive, but they're also vulnerable. I think it's a really tricky age in that particular way. So whether it's heartbreak or family trauma or um, whatever it might be. And I think that really informs a lot of the characters I write, I suppose, that they would have been this particular person that this something has happened or that you just don't know what has happened has made them into the person they are. But essentially, um, they have so much promise and that's really exciting. And I guess that's what I like to explore with my female characters, even though bad things might have happened, yeah. there's, there's good stuff ahead for them. And there should be because that's really the character they are and they're a good person. They deserve that. So. Yeah, yeah. And so which um, characters have stood out for you apart from, you know, Elizabeth oh, Bennett? Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> all the Jane Austen characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's that's interesting too. Look, it's often it is a voice thing with me. And mm. I think, um, I said, my, my rule, my book's a little bit unusual in some ways because they are first person. They're only one person's point of view, which isn't such a common way at all for romance mm. um, besides straight rom-com. I always, that fresh, bright voice going right back to Georgette Heyer. Have characters with that voice in that dialogue. Um, Julia Quinn, who of course everybody knows now because of Bridgerton, but I, I was aware of her. She has that lovely light voice. Sophie Kinsella has that other voice too. So I guess it's that voice of optimism and promise and everything. Um, Jennifer Cruiser has a lovely, that really nice voice too. And mine, obviously, I, we all have different voices, but it's a matter of you enjoy that. A story that's galloping along, I guess, and that's what I kind of like writing and I bring in the environment and other things too. But then you read someone like Sarah Winman with those beautiful, beautiful short sentences and, and just beautiful character mm. development. Mm. And again, in a, you know, on a surface, simple way of writing, yeah. um, you know, Helen Garner writes like that too. And so then you think it's not all about flowery expression or anything. The most important thing is the character and the story, but just... Yeah, that clarity of voice, that, that really gets you in. And I think being character-driven, that's really important to me. But, you know, but the plot as well. So, I mean, I, yeah, I read a certain amount of literary fiction, but the literary fiction I read is more the ones where bit page turning yeah, as well yeah, really yeah a literary page turner oh, romance. Romantic, yeah. Literary yeah. Page let's just have mine. it all let's have yeah. it all um can you read while you're writing i find it a bit tricky i mean at the mm. moment i'm kind of doing the george saunders mm. craft books i careful not to read well it's that rural fiction yeah and i do read some rural fiction but you have 
uh, wonderful writers like you know, Carly Lane or Mailing Allen and so on in Right Rural, but they're, they're quite different and different voice and so on, and they're you know living on a property, whereas I am a lawyer background. I live in the city. Yes, I ride. Yes, I've had a lot of experience with horses and animals and so on, but I don't think that would be authentic for me, that particular voice. And I think that's why I always have that more that international component or that law or environment, and so I bring that part of my writing into mm my rural romance and my rural fiction, which is the great thing about romance because it is such a, a broad genre. Um, so I probably don't read as much rural, but that's only because I think, oh, my goodness, mine is such uh, <laughs> it's so much better than rival. <laughs> so it would not be good for my self-esteem. Um, so then I'm more likely to read other things. But it, it's good as a writer, as you know, that we can um, you know, read all different things and get something different from yeah yeah exactly you're a very disciplined writer even when we're on retreat you do not waver from your routine can you tell us what your daily writing practice consists of I tend to get up early as I said and write those first three or four hours of writing really sets me up well I was first published in 2017 but I suppose I started writing really seriously in 2013 14 and in those days, I was still working full-time as an academic, so I would um, get up at sort of 3 o'clock <laughs> before the children were up and off to school, and I'd kind of write from 3 o'clock till 6 o'clock, 6.30. Um, and I, I just find that if I have that chunk done in the morning, and that will be new words, new writing, and then I think that my mind is, that's going round and round in my mind while I'm doing other things with kids and so on and or yeah. in the day job. Um, that's really useful to me. So then nowadays I do that, you know, at first three or four hours of morning if I can. Then during the day, um, sometimes I, I procrastinate a lot um, and I'm doing other writing and other bits and pieces and doing other things. But then I do try and sit down again at about three o'clock in the afternoon and then I'll go over that scene I've written that morning and sometimes think that's not right um, and I'll know why it's not right because I've been thinking of it all day. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I suspect that means that my mind is probably not on the other things that should be on during the day but yeah that's important and because you've got all the authoring business stuff I mean quite often you're writing a newsletter or you're writing an op-ed piece or you're writing a piece for romance writers of Australia or you write a legal column as well don't you yeah I do that's for the RWA romance writers of Australia magazine yes a legal beagle legal beagle law is it's relevant to your writing so, yes, I do. And that's the sort of middle of the day stuff. If I have time during the day, I write that. So I have my three-hour kind of chunk in the morning mm. and I have my two or three hours in the afternoon. Um, when I'm editing, uh, that's that's when I'm sort of writing the first draft when I'm doing that. But when I'm editing, I find editing is more like writing an assignment or doing homework or doing a work project. Like I've got this stuff thing, okay, this has to change. What's going to happen here? Mm. And so some of editing I can actually do more in the evening or I can work 10 hours straight if I have to and do editing or like, you know, let alone proofreading where you can work a really really long day because yeah. I don't think it's as creative I mean often on the weekends I'll you know my husband will say oh we Sunday you know what are you doing and but sometimes it's because I'm not doing social media I'm not doing anything I'm just writing this scene because it's in my head and that's yeah. actually a really joyful experience and so that will be my like reading book really where we, we read a book for joy mm. and it will be the same yeah. sort of thing in writing sometimes and I love this is one of the things I love about you is you have your food slash drink that goes with those sessions so the morning is the <laughs> cup of tea 
cup of tea in the morning. In the morning yes. That's with the first writing session. And then right. I think I've seen on your Instagram, but I know um, that in the afternoon you'll have a, another cuppa and a, and a biscuit of some kind. That's right, yes. And then there's the glass of wine for exactly. the evening session. That's right, yes. And I love that. Is that important to have those rituals? Well, it is really. I mean, I think I, when I was working um, for a big legal firm once and was, a, you know, one of these motivational people and I'm not motivational stuff generally, but this guy came in and, and he, you know, all these sea of lawyers he was looking at and was saying, you know, what was the first thing you did when you got to work this morning? And, you know, most of us said, well, we got a cup of coffee. <laughs> then we went back to our desks. Um and he said, no, no, but that's a reward. You know, you haven't done anything yet. What are you getting a cup of coffee for? You haven't even done anything yet. And so then I think that, you know, as I, I had the cup of tea. And often it's good if the tea is delayed. It's like a delayed thing. You know, it's a trainer puppy, I guess. Um, you delay yeah. it more and more. <laughs> and so then um, Pete, my husband, usually gets up and he's doing his exercises or whatever. And so sometimes my cup of tea takes a while to get there. So I'm busy typing till it comes and I have my cup of tea. And then, um, yeah, then a couple of hours later, then I'll have breakfast and then I'll keep on working. Afternoon, mm-hmm. cup of tea is your biscuits, chocolate, and then a cup of coffee in the afternoon. That's something else. So, okay, mm-hmm. I'll just have this cup of coffee and then I'll finish. And that's where with our writing group, sometimes mm-hmm. we have sprints and we'll just be, we'll be writing between two and four. And I think things like that really help because I think, okay, well, I'll just make myself read this scene and then often you do keep going with it because um, I think writing can be very boring and a lot of writers might not say that, I don't know. But when you've really got to get the job done, you know, it can be tiring. It's hard work and it's mentally taxing. So you don't necessarily want to just jump into it always. Um, you have to make yourself so. Biscuits, coffee, tea, wine, wine. <laughs> While I'm cooking, doing that glass of wine. Oh, the wine. Lovely. Did writing Clouds on the Horizon, your sixth novel, and you've also got a novella in there and lots of other bits and pieces, but did this book, with all that experience, teach you anything new about writing craft or process, Pen? Um, I think I have learned because of my earlier backstory issues that probably I need to have backstory early enough that um, readers know where my Mm. character is coming from. I think I've always had that by the end of the book and then it's been a, a mountain to climb to get into the mm. front of the book. Yeah. Um, so certainly backstory. Also with voice, it's really good if you start writing with um, with Clouds on the Rise and I started writing and I really liked Phoebe's voice straight away and that really kept me going. So that makes it easier if you really engage with, with the character's voice, I think. Um, the one that's with my publisher mm. now, I really like that voice. That was easy. At the moment, I'm struggling more and I think that's because I'm, not quite into that, so I probably have to work out a way in which that character's voice can, um, yeah, just to get to know that character and to bring that in. I think it's it's more, I think, knowing after writing that there are certain things that you need to happen to keep you interested and to keep the story going. This, this year is a little bit unusual for you in that you've just released Clouds on the Horizon, which your books normally come out in January, but you've got another release coming out, haven't you? Can you tell us about that? Do Well, that is on the same page, um, which I was actually a student because, I mean, I was a lawyer forever, but then I thought it's all I knew really. Okay, I'm kind of interested in editing. I used to edit people's PhDs and bits and pieces at uni, so I thought I'd do a little editing course. So I did the, I was just doing certificate, and then I had to do a narrative writing compulsory part of that course, and and that was fiction writing, and I just absolutely loved it. So then I transferred to the Masters. I thought, right, okay, I've always liked the idea of writing, so I'm going to do it, but I better learn how to do it. So I'd never studied literature or anything like that. So 
Um, yeah, so I did that at UTS and worked with some fabulous teachers and writers there. Um, and while I was there, I started writing on the same page, which just started off as sort of a paragraph, and it's about a she's a romance writer, um, and she has very famous literary parents. So her name is Miles Franklin. And so I wrote that all the way through my master's, which is probably in the younger students would say, oh, wow, you, that's really good you're doing the same thing. And I'm thinking, well, I'm the age. Well, I didn't have time to tinker, tinker, tinker for decades. I need to knock this thing out. <laughs> that's right. So in that sort of two or three years, I was still working full time. Then I wrote on the same page. So that was a very early draft of it. And it's been through um, a lot of edits and sound. But it was really nice because there were lots of poets and script writers and literary writers yeah. with the students. And certainly the teachers were much more of that bent. Um, but by the end of that um, course, people were really curious. Well, what's happening with Miles and Lars? Like, how are they going? So it was all, um, it was really affirming in that way. And I think I was of an age then too. I don't think I could have done that in 20s or 30s. I think I worried more, too much what people would think. Yeah. Oh, I'm writing a romance and people look down on that. Yeah. Um, which is often the case. So that was um, released a few years ago. There are a couple of things that niggled with it. And so when HarperCollins, my current publisher, said that they'd take it on, so I got to sort of go back into it and I changed a few mm. things. And I'm really excited about that. So, yeah, so that comes out um, on the 1st of April. So that is exciting. And it's got a brand new cover, which is gorgeous. It has. It is. Rom-com. I loved On the Same Page. I thought it was a wonderful rom-com i absolutely adored it i loved miles and it's a great premise that the daughter of literary parents is actually a closet romance that's right gousy <laughs> yeah. parents so um yeah but it's a good fun novel and quite a few men really engage with that novel too because i think mean, it is a romance yeah. is important in it but it's it's much more commentary there's a lot of um kind of literary references and things like that thrown in it which mean a lot i mean and that was when i was writing that i remember it was the handmaid's tale and my daughters had done that for the see i'd read the handmaid's tale and there's even a discussion early in that about The Handmaid's Tale and, you know, and, and Miles, the character, accuses Lars of, you know, using um, her characters in her romance novels of, you know, pimping them because they're commercially successful, pimping them to support um, the other literary authors in this publishing house. And I made a comment on that. It's just like The Handmaid's Tale. And between me writing that and then, of course, years later, and then now it's the big TV <laughs> Thing. But it wasn't yes. that. I, thought, I knew, I knew Atwood. No. I knew Atwood already when she was just purely a novelist, not serialised television. So. Yeah, when it was just Ooh. Year Twelve syllabus yeah. material, not international yes. HBO. It's taken on a life of its own. Pen, I want to say a huge thank you for chatting with me today. You are such an inspiration to me. You really are. I, I turn to you often as a mentor and as someone whose experience I really respect and I just love you. Oh, thank you, Michelle. So thank you for coming on today. It's just been such a pleasure. No, absolute honour to talk to you. Thank you. And um, absolute pleasure to be a writing friend of yours. Thank you. There you go, Penelope Janu. I've always come away feeling inspired after spending time with Penn. She loves connecting with readers too, so please do go and follow her on her socials. You'll find all her information at penelopejanu.com. And of course, you can go and buy her book. If you love romance, if you love rural romance, if you love a bit of mystery, if you love hot Scandinavian guys, it's really worth hopping into her books. Now for my next guest. Have you ever read a novel and halfway through you surprise yourself with an audible gasp? And you have to turn back a few pages to read it again just to be sure you weren't actually mistaken about what just happened. 
Well, that's exactly what happened to me when I read Devotion by Hannah Kend over the summer. Devotion is Hannah's latest novel, but of course, you will know her from her phenomenal best-selling debut, Burial Rites, and her equally compelling novel, The Good People. Hannah's not only an exceptional writer, but she's exceptionally articulate about the subject of writing too. I'm so looking forward to this chat. If you would like to ask Hannah a writing question for her to answer on the podcast, you can do that at writersbookclubpodcast.com or over on Instagram or Facebook under one of the Hannah Kent posts that I'll put there, which is also where you can enter a giveaway to win a copy of Devotion, thanks to Pan Macmillan. Entries will close on March the 8th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's always a giveaway every month, so keep an eye on socials and hopefully you'll get lucky. Now, for those of you who subscribe to my newsletter, you're in for a special treat this month because you also get a chance to win a copy of Meredith Jaffe's brand new novel that is coming out tomorrow on the 2nd of March. It's called The Tricky Art of Forgiveness and it's already getting rave reviews. Meredith actually appeared in episode six on the podcast last year, which had it all things writing, focusing on her book, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, which came out last year. The newsletter is a great way of keeping up with what's happening too. In it, I share the things I'm loving, what I'm watching, what I'm listening to, what I'm reading, and any writing tips that I've come across that might also be helpful to you in your writing. You can sign up for the newsletter at michellebarraclough.com. And of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, and I really hope you are, I'd love it if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Okay, that's it for this month. I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing.